Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 107 Battle Lords of the 23rd Century. Okay, so I know I've promoted the hell out of this for the past several episodes, but I just want to make sure you get the chance to get your favorite adventures in for next week's show. You've still got time, especially since this looks like another two-part episode. So if you've got a favorite module slash adventure, regardless of the game or the system, hit me up by email or on the socials and let me know. Next week will be the first part of the rundown and we'll wrap it up the week after. In theory. So get them in quick. Oh, and for the record, this looks like it's going to be at least 90% old school D&D, And to be honest, I ain't mad about that at all. Okay, so with that, let's crank up the tour bus and get into this week's topic. Battle Lords of the 23rd Century was designed by Lawrence R. Sims and originally released by Optimus Design Systems in 1990. Now, normally I'd get into a whole spiel about the inspirations for the game and what Sims was thinking when he designed it, But he's not been big on interviews over the years. So instead of that, our history section of the show today is going to be detailing the multiple editions of Battle Lords of the 23rd Century. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to shorten that to Battle Lords moving forward. I mean, saying the entire title does take up more time, but the more I have to say it, the more chances I have to trip all over my big-ass tongue, and therefore the longer it takes me to edit. Anyway... One notable fact about that original edition of the game is that the first printing had a black and white cover illustration of what's known as a Ram Python on it. So if you've got that, you've got an original first printing. Overall, the first edition had two printings, and the second is known in the game world as the Arlington edition. I have no idea why it's called that, as my research came up goose eggs, But in the interest of full disclosure, I figured I'd mention it here. Late in 1990, the second edition was released. Optimus Design Systems originally called it a revised first edition, but the revisions were so plentiful that it was later changed to being referred to as the second edition of Battle Lords. Oh, and this edition has a black and white scene of a Ram Python and something known as a Fentari. Again, whenever I know what was on the covers, I'm going to tell you so that you know which edition of the game you have or let you know what edition of the game you're buying when you do decide to do so. Consider it my gift to you. You're welcome. The third edition of the game originally dropped in 1991, and this first printing is a red cloud background with a Fentari on the cover. Printing number two dropped in 1992, and it's a blue battle scene with a sword-wielding Iridani on it. Don't worry, we're going to break down what the hell these various things are momentarily. Fourth edition, much like second edition, originally began as a revised edition of the previous one, and again was changed due to the amount of new information provided within. This edition borrows the same cover from the second printing of the third edition, so just be aware. The fifth edition of Battle Lords was the final release from Optimus Design Systems and was released in 1993. It has a black cover with a full-color cityscape on it, and I've actually seen this cover, and I gotta tell you, it looks really cool. 
Optimus Design Systems sold the license for Battle Lords to SSDC Inc. in September of 1999, and from our history of license sales, we know what comes next. The sixth edition of Battle Lords was released in 2000. Alternately known as the 10th Anniversary Edition, it's got a montage of races and starships on the cover. Again, I've seen this cover, and again, it's really cool and really well done. In 2017, SSDC granted exclusive rights to produce games set in the Battle Lords universe to 23rd Century Productions LLC, and they launched themselves a Kickstarter to produce the seventh edition of the game. Needless to say, the Kickstarter was successful, and this new edition was released in 2019. Now, 7th edition is also known as the Kickstarter edition or the revised edition and has an awesome scene with armored figures on it along with space fighters. Again, it's cool as hell and worth the price for the cover art alone. 23rd Century Productions is the exclusive producer for Battle Lords as they're not only responsible for the 7th edition of the game, but also distributing the prior versions of the game. They're also handling distribution for the various supplements and adventures published in the earlier versions of the game. So if you're interested in checking out any of these fine products, check out their website, 23rdcentury.net. That's 23rd Century, 23rdcentury.net. I just spell it so there can be no confusion. We've noticed over the course of our podcast that when a product has this long of a shelf life, it typically sees itself utilized in other forms, and Battle Lords is no different. In 1995, it saw a version of itself as a collectible card game, and while that didn't last very long, it saw a devoted niche market while it existed. And while SSDC did give 23rd Century the game rights, they kept the rights for other products, and in late 2017, they announced a series of novels and short stories set in the Battle Lord universe. As of this show, the only book that's been released is the October 2017 title, Across the Wounded Galaxy. However, SSDC still maintains that more releases will be coming, so check out the first book while we await news for more. So with the history covered, let's get into the setting of Battle Lords. Battle Lords is set in the year 2279. The Galactic Alliance is the major faction in the game, and it's in their territory that the bulk of the adventures take place in. For the record, Alliance space contains several galaxies, so there's a lot of real estate to use for scenarios. And the Alliance itself is diverse, as it consists of 12 races, of which humans are but one. There's intrigue in the game, as the Alliance is run by huge mega-corporations who are seeking to exploit the farthest reaches of space. However, they do it subtly and behind the scenes. So this is where the PCs come in. They'll usually be Battle Lords, who are mercenaries in the employ of one of the megacores with a mandate to further the business by any means. And I mean any means. Shady and or illegal actions are pretty much always options on the table. They've got factions working against them because, of course they do. Rival mercenaries, rebels, hostile alien lifeforms on other planets. Even the alien race called the Arachnids are out there and either working against the players or are in the way of them accomplishing their goals. Now, before we get into the various races of Battle Lords, and there are quite a few, 
I did want to expand on the various territories of the Alliance. The Milky Way, Andromeda, Fornax, Spirax, M32, and the Magellanic Clouds are either completely in or at least partially in the Alliance, and the No Man's Land and Hell's Kitchen supplements provide more details on two sectors of the Fornax galaxy. I realize that's not quite the territory lesson I give in Bad GM's campaign build-along, but since we've got a ton of race details to get out there, I'm fairly confident we're going to make up for it. I mentioned a moment or two ago that there are 12 races presented in the core rulebook that make up the Galactic Alliance, so let's start our look with them. First up are the Tatillians. They are green-skinned humanoids with lumpy projections on their skulls. They're also psychic. An interesting thing about those projections is that they can generate and store psychic energy that can be channeled and directed by the use of specifically attuned crystals either carried or worn by the user. There's a subclass of the Chatillion known as empaths, and as you might have guessed, these are the psychics that can read emotions. The Chiserak are next. These are quadrupedal felinoid warriors with a matriarchal society. They're also exceptionally territorial. We all know what a matriarchal society is, but Battle Lords takes it to an extreme with the Chiserak. Females control all aspects of the society, with males used pretty much only for breeding purposes. Chiserak do their best work in the game as scouts and spies. Let's talk about the Iridani, especially since I've already mentioned them a couple of times when I mentioned the covers of the various releases. These are some interesting folks. They're methane-breathing humanoids with a strong philosophical bend. Iridani society is rigid and caste-based and is also militocratic. They follow a philosophy called Kosh Mukal, or study of the inner self. That philosophy states that the individual can find enlightenment through performing their function correctly within their cultural niche. Tell you what, let's take a look at those castes. The Vax, or warriors, are the upper class. They run the military and control the government. The Tolud, or gentry, are the lesser families of the Vax. These would be the middle class, as it were. They're the non-commissioned officers and soldiers. But they're also the technicians, artisans, doctors, nurses, bureaucrats, civil servants. You're getting the point. The Mudig, or unclean, are considered to be the lower class, and they do all of the work we'd consider to be manual labor. In the game, the Tolud are the Iridani players would most likely meet, since they tend to be those who go off-world the most. Vax might be encountered, but unless there's a war going on, the chances are that any Vax encountered will be mercenaries. Modig aren't allowed to leave the homeworld unless they're on a campaign with the military, so the chances of one of them being a part of the game are pretty slim. And there are a couple of subclasses of Iridani that might interest players. Sword Saints, who are also known as Mokaba Datu, or Wisdom Warriors, our warriors are trained in the use of sacred bladed weapons and firearms in order to achieve enlightenment through Goyu Makibgi, or Silent Peace. There's also the Budan priests, who are retired warriors. They found Rota Mabgiki, or Supreme Peace, and have become teachers and philosophers. If it sounds like Iridani or a popular race in the game, you don't know the half of it. Trust me, I could take an entire month's worth of shows to go over all the stuff I found online about them, but we kind of need to move along. Gen humans are genetically modified, cloned humans. There's a, a long story about how gen humans came to be. The basics are that after the second Holocaust, the human race had a low birth rate. 
Therefore, genetic research was conducted to remove non-beneficial traits and introduce beneficial ones. Ultimately, these genetically modified clones were grown in vats. Now, as one might expect, normal humans do not like gen humans. And there's been a war fought over them, as well as laws established concerning them. They face bigotry and restrictions and are treated as second-class citizens. It should also be noted that while they're genetically modified, they're not very genetically diverse, which is a major downside. Obviously, gen humans are based on Earth, but thanks to the various laws of the planet, you can also find them just about anywhere doing just about any kind of job they can find. Well, since we've discussed modified humans, let's take a moment to look at what we'd call baseline humans. There's not a lot of new stuff to cover here, except to note that pacifism tends to be at least partially the norm for most humans, though it's balanced out with a feeling of manifest destiny that states they believe they're destined to control the Alliance as a whole. Needless to say, the rest of the Alliance races think their belief is adorable, so that should tell you a bit about their place in the universe. Next up are the iBots, or Intelligent Robots, these are your AI androids built to mimic nearly any life form. They're programmed to be loyal to the corporation that owns them and to the Alliance, and it's in that order, which should probably disturb you a little bit more than it does. iBots have poor intuition and, of course, cannot heal themselves, so if they're damaged, they have to be taken in and repaired. They're also not considered to be true life forms. Instead, they're the property of the megacore that owns them. Insofar as jobs, they tend to do the jobs that are too dangerous for others to do, which makes sense when you figure in the whole their property thing. In what's probably going to be the shortest entry on our list, the Mazian are amorphous shapeshifters. Told you it was short. The Matazchan are super geniuses, though they're also small, frail, and inquisitive. They wield psychic energy and tend to become addicted to the energies they manipulate. You could think of them as megalomaniacal, but it ain't bragging if you can actually do it, and these folks can do it. They hail from the planet Trishmog of the 61 Cygni A star system, which is located in the Cygnus constellation of the Milky Way galaxy. They've got a subclass known as the Energy Controllers. They have the ability to manipulate energy forms and can use the forms to generate huge amounts of power. They love energy in its raw, uncorrupted form and view the storage of energy as useless. Orion are humanoids with pointed ears and seven fingers on each hand. They're also hedonists with a thrill-seeking mentality, and they've got some seriously flexible social and moral codes. They tend to be your rogues and, in fact, have a subclass called rogue. They're the scheming, cunning tricksters you'd expect and would belong to a nomadic clan. In fact, the majority of Orion seen off-planet will be rogues. I mentioned the Fentari earlier as being on one of the book covers, and they're also methane breathers. They are four-armed cephalopoids. They're treacherous, haughty, and very warrior-like. Fun fact, their brains are controlled by different lobes, each with its own personality, abilities, and interpretation of reality. So that kind of works like this. One main lobe controls the brain for day-to-day -day activities, while other lobes are devoted to, and will take over for, things like combat, learning, reasoning, problem-solving, you get the point. They are carnivores with a preference for sapient beings and sentient animals. 
And for those playing human characters, humans are considered a delicacy. Fentari come from the Arctic methane planet Fena in the Tau Ceti star system. Let's talk Python Lizard. They're large, they're strong, and they're agile. They're rather clueless as well. They're amphibian warriors and are indigenous to the planets Pythos and Asheria of the Floridian star system. And there's probably a joke in there someplace, but I just don't have the time for it. Let's move on. The second shortest entry is going to be the Ram Pythons. I also name dropped them when I was detailing the book covers and their huge, brutishly strong reptilian shock troopers. And according to my research, dumb as hell. Last up on our list of the 12 are the Zen Riglin. These folks are rather beloved in the Alliance. They're pacifists as well as biokinetic healers. Their society is extremely traditional with a ton of rituals they follow religiously. Now, while the basic idea is for the players to play one of those 12 races, since they'd be acting as battle lords, the opportunity exists for characters to be rebels or some other sort of character. That allows for a number of other races to be played, and they're divided basically into hostile, neutral, and friendly categories, and those terms apply to the relationship vis-a-vis -vis the alliance. We'll start with the hostile races, since I listed them first. The Aerodronian are bipedal amphibians. Considered to be very cunning, they prefer damp or humid environments, and if they're stuck in dry environments, their skin becomes flaky and cracked. Wait a minute, that happens to me. Hmm. Aerodronians also have the ability to regenerate lost digits and limbs. They happen to be fanatical environmentalists, so that means they'll be trading or raiding other planets to get what they need. And this environmental stance is also a bit hypocritical, as while they're all about saving their own environment and bitch at others about destroying their own, they have absolutely zero problems with destroying someone else's environment to get what they need. The home world is a militocracy made up of 26 clans, and each clan is led basically by a warlord. Oh, and the clans are in competition to see who can bring home the most plunder. Our next entry has literally been described as synthetic xenophobic rednecks. Nice. They're called FOT, that's F-O-T-T, and they were created by the super terrorist and gazillionaire Uncle Ernie Freiberg. And he basically did it to work his way around Alliance law, since they barely meet the definition of a sapient race. So they can't be wiped out or sterilized, which <laughs> means they're free to wreak havoc. They are curious, reckless, aggressive, and have a strange sense of entitled superiority over other races. They also reproduce like rabbits, or at least engage in the act of procreation as such. They're omnivores with the basic theory of, if it can be eaten, we'll eat it. Oh, and if it can't be eaten, they'll hunt it for sport. Needless to say, they tend to be mercenaries because it allows them to work out their darker desires legally. Oh, and to top it all off, fought are furry. So while there are a number of weapons they will use, they'll do everything in their power to avoid flamethrowers and energy weapons. The Kizanti have what's been described as mesomorphic builds with red eyes with black oval-shaped pupils and no earlobes. They were developed on the planet Pharon, which is in the Karani's star system in the Fornax galaxy. Kizanti hate Fentari and have gone to war with them before. They also hate the Alliance for siding with the Fentari. 
Kizanti have a policy of only the strongest survive, and it's their method of ensuring only the true Kizanti can survive to pass along their genes. As you might guess, they tend to act as warriors and assassins, and needless to say, they're not much into downtime and frivolous activities. They prefer aggressive or provocative clothing, since they want to draw attention to themselves. It makes it easier to kill someone, in their opinion. Much like Star Trek's Klingons, they're really into using their ritualistic bladed weapons to kill, especially when they're killing Fentari. By the way, there's an interesting fact about the world of Faron. It's what's called a Shade World, which is a cross-dimensional planet both in and out of phase with our dimension. The Kizanti have learned how to displace themselves dimensionally, which makes them able to become invisible at will. They carry with them a ritual marker they use to center themselves for the return jump. Now, I couldn't find a lot of information on the Zazen Riglin, except to note that they're a cult of rogue biokinetic sadists who use the good reputation of their culture to lure in their victims and throw suspicion off themselves with authorities. Okay. By the way, I found even less on the Zur. I say it that way because it's Z-Z-W-H-I-R-R. Anyway. They're an insectoid race that have allied themselves with the Rebellion. All right, with the hostile races out of the way, let's look at the neutral ones. The Andromeni are beings of a dying race, and they're dying off because their homeworld is contaminated by an energy-based plague. Needless to say, they're under quarantine to prevent the spread of said plague. This race might hit a little close to home in 2023, but could still be an interesting one to play. It has a subclass. Hang on, I keep saying the words subclass. I should really just be using the word class, because that's what it is. So let's just roll along with that word. The class for the Andromeni are energy vampires. Basically, some of those who've been infected by the plague have the power to take on an energy form. When they're in the energy form, they can possess the physical body of a material being and feed off of them. If the vampire happens to be benign, they'll use the bodies of the recently dead or those life forms that are mindless. If they happen to be selfish or sadistic, your choice, they'll feed on living, sentient beings. The Freck were introduced as a playtest during the 7th edition work through, and there's not a whole lot of information out there about them, so we'll just be mentioning their name. Here's a fun one to say. Gula Gula are hairy, purple-skinned, technophilic dwarves. Play that one over in your head for a minute. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna wait. They do have the stereotypical personality of being ill-tempered and rude, but they tend to not be when they're analyzing or repairing technology. But in following with the ill-tempered and rude vibe, they're typically rather callous and selfish when it comes to the suffering of others. In other words, they don't give a shit about the suffering of others. From what I noticed in my research, these behaviors come from their survival instincts, which demand they promote their own well-being over anyone else. And their focus on technology also plays into it. Gula Gula are omnivores and scavengers, and they live in an exceptionally hostile environment chock full of predators. They're also xenophobic, so if you encounter one outside of their home planet, it's because they're looking for some high technology to acquire and return to the homeworld. The Jezidai are up next. They're a race of bovinoids who are both scholarly and peaceful. Their claim to fame is their ability to store psychic power in enchanted talisman objects known as biathlon by using attuned ritual wands or staves called atok or life staves. 
Some of the larger ad talks have compartments that can be used to store by Athlons, so they can both store and use psychic powers. The classes for Jezidai are the Scholar and the Priest. Jezidai scholars are, as you might expect, researchers, artificers, and scientists, with their focus being on their area of interest. They tend to get excited when they find similarities and differences between the various cultures they encounter. They're also really into discovering new things and rediscovering old things that might have been considered lost or forgotten. All of that being said, you're not going to run into many of these folks off-world because their obsessions tend to keep them on the homeworld. Jezidai priests are missionaries who travel the universe. They use their healing powers to help others. They also want to spread the culture's pacifist, pantheistic religion, so these will be the Jezidai encountered most often out in the universe. Last on the list of the neutral races are the Misha. These might sound a little weird, but I find them weirdly cool. They're frail, transparent humanoids with delicate, crystalline bones. They sleep for long periods of time, but when they're awake, they're in a semi-conscious sleepwalking state. And for the record, there's never been a Misha encountered in a fully conscious state. Their class is the Dream Merchant. The Misha enters a psychic dream state, which allows them to perceive potential futures. They can also manipulate a particular future into being. Time now to cover the friendly races. The Ashanti are slender, gray-skinned, four-armed warriors. They're a bit weird-looking, with elongated skulls and flat faces. They show their emotions through pheromones rather than facial expressions, which makes sense when you consider how their heads are shaped. They've also got a sort of sixth sense that allows a group of Ashanti to perceive objects in their environment through their linked perceptions. When you consider that they're warriors, that can be exceptionally helpful, since a squad of Ashanti arranged in a circle basically have a 360-degree view of what's going on. The Furby are furry, absent-minded mammals known for their agility. They began their existence, basically, as Orion pets. When the Alliance realized they were sapient, they were freed and given race status. They'll typically be found in the technical or skilled manual trades, like mechanic or cook, they also tend to have sticky fingers, but they do it more for fun or sport than anything else, and they try to return the item before the mark realizes it's been taken. If they can, they get a point. If not, the mark gets a point. It's a strange game, I'll grant you, but at least they return what they take. Gemini are large, burly, silicone-based, rocky-skinned humanoids with psychic abilities. They follow a philosophy that reveres life. All life. They're pacifist the majority of the time. They can get rather pissed off when the acts of others harm the environment or threaten the living things in their ecosystem. Then, well, just listen to that first sentence again and take a guess at what happens. Ikrini are humanoids with psychic powers. Those powers are tied to natural forces. They began on Liara in the Crab Nebula, but became refugees when the home world was damaged by arachnid infestations. Their class is the Geomancer, and those are Ikrini, who can tap into the kinetic power of natural forces, such as volcanoes, waterfalls, and storms. The Tan, that's T-A-N-N, are tripedal humanoids. Their society is rather complicated, as it's feudalistic, matriarchal, theocratic, and a monarchy. They're led by a queen, at least historically. 
They consider cybernetics to be holy, and they're granted to a child once they've undergone divination to determine their caste. Tan live underground in huge labyrinth cities. The class I saw listed the most for the Tan are the Tandai, or Tech Knight. This is the warrior caste of the Tan and will be the one encountered the most off-world. They're programmed to be fiercely loyal to the Tan race and the Queen. Also, they're sorted into color-coded military corps, and while they can't attack or kill members of their own corps, the members of other corps are fair game, but only in combat during wartime. Tandai are typically either loaned out as mercenaries or loaned out to serve in other races' armies, so that's how they'll typically be encountered. So I've named a ton of races the players could potentially choose for a game of Battle Lords, but there are four more races I feel obligated to mention, if for no other reasons that they will only be NPCs. I mentioned the Arachnids a few minutes ago, and they're a race of spider-like aliens. They have four walking limbs, two manipulator limbs located near their mouths, and two spinning limbs that shoot strands of spider silk. They're exceptionally hostile and have been known to use captive life forms for food or as incubators for their eggs. Crackids are large anthropods. When they were first encountered, they were mistaken for arachnids. However, they're in a tentative truce with the Alliance at the present. This was another race used during playtesting, so I wasn't able to dig up a whole hell of a lot else out there about them. If you want to know more about them, pick up a copy of the 7th edition. Psymen, that's S-Y-E men, were described to me as cryptic humanoids with powerful healing powers. In fact, they can even bring back the dead, but only if they decide it's worthwhile or important. They're rather mummy-like, as their bodies are rotting, which is a rather nasty sight, and they're bound in wrappings and covered in a long hooded robe known as a nuile, so they can hide their appearance from other races. They also tend to be rather shifty about their origins, so we're not going to get into all that here. They tend to be at odds with the Zen Riglin because the Zen Riglin resent them and call them a mockery of everything they stand for. The Simon, for their part, don't respond. Last up are the Zaurians. They've been described as looking like bumpy, slimy end tables. They're hexapetal, flat-bodied amphibians with bumpy, moist skin. They can also use their first two pair of legs as a sort of hand-like manipulator. Oh, and all six legs are fully rotational. Look, there's a lot more to the description, but I think I'll leave it for you to pick up the book and check out because I know I've done one hell of an info dump here. Besides, I'm 12 pages and 4,900 words of script into this show and I still haven't done the system. So, let's do the system. Over its lifetime, Battle Lords has been run under two different systems. From 1st through 6th editions, the game utilized the D100 system we're all accustomed to on this show by now. I tend to call it the percentile die system from time to time, so if you don't know it one way, the other should make sense. 7th edition busted out a new system called the X150. Now, the only way I've found thus far to get information on that system is to buy a copy of the 7th edition of the rules, so I'll need to get back to you about how the system runs, but that's info for another show. Characters in Battle Lords have eight scores called Vital Statistics, and they are Strength, Manual Dexterity, Intelligence Quotient, Agility, Constitution, Aggression, Intuition, and Charisma. When you've got those, they're used to figure out the four secondary statistics, which are Knowledge, Military Leadership, Persuasion, and Bargaining. Needless to say, these scores are influenced heavily by the character's race. 
There are no real character classes or character levels in Battlelords. I mean, I referred to classes in the race descriptions, but think of those more like the types of individuals the characters would either be or run into during the course of a campaign. The system is skill-based, and skills are increased with experience earned, and that's experienced through adventuring rather than a set number of experience points. Some of the races have what are called matrix abilities. These are psionics, basically, and can also be advanced with character experience. Other races, as we noted, are better suited for physical combat or for other types of occupations. Now, Battle Lords uses a rather detailed process to generate characters. Called I Was Just Growing Up, it allows for determining events from the character's past. Obviously, these can be good, bad, or both, and an example I noted was that a positive would be getting several thousand credits worth of gear, while a negative would be getting horribly crippled or maimed. There are several tables used during this process, including a race-specific and a job-specific table. Both are chosen by the player. In all editions before 7th, combat is resolved by rolling percentile dice and using hit location tables. There's also futuristic armor systems and massive critical hits to take into account, so it might take a minute or two to resolve issues. Actions in the game are resolved in half actions, which are one second each, and full actions, which are three seconds each. During a given round, a character can perform two half actions or one full action. I didn't get a good breakdown of what would be considered a half action and what would be a full action, but it's for certain that attacking would be a full action. One other note before we wrap. As of this writing, there's not anything in the rules about space combat, though there have been vehicle rules built into the game over the years. The publishers keep promising rules for space combat, but nobody I read online knew anything about them. So we're just going to have to keep our eyes open for them. And if I see some, I will let you know. Normally, this would be the spot where I'd drop in a review or two. But since I've droned on all this time, I think we'll skip the reviews and instead come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we run the first of our two episodes detailing your choices for the best role-playing modules and adventures of all time. Before I get into the usual closing stuff, I wanted to remind everyone that the crew of Bad GM Productions will be at Archon 46 in Collinsville, Illinois, September 29th through October 1st. As of this recording, this is the only convention we're going to be at this year, and this year we're going to be set up in the game room, and we'll be broadcasting live on our various social media channels during the event. That being said, there's still plenty of time to get your passes if you're interested, so if you are interested, check out their website, archonstl.org, that's A-R-C-H-O-N-S-T-L.org, and get all the information. Trust me, you are going to want to come check this out. In the meanwhile, check out our other fine podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This week, we continue our group's search for the individual responsible for the theft of Victor's stuff, and they hit on him and the group. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we begin our look at the modules you picked as the best of all time. 
and I cannot begin to tell you how excited I am for this. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.